Hello, and welcome to the Tech Dirt Podcast. I'm Mike Masnick, except this is not the Tech Dirt Podcast. Um, this week we have something a little bit different. Uh, last week I was on the Tech Freedom Podcast. Uh, Tech Freedom is a Washington, D.C.-based think tank. It does a lot of work on tech policy issues, um, some of which we agree with, some of which we don't agree with them on, but um, they're good people all around, uh, and they definitely do some really good work. Anyways, they invited me to be on their podcast to talk about copyright, which is actually a topic that Tech Freedom doesn't do very much work in. And so uh, I was there discussing things about DMCA, notice and takedown, intermediary liability, and the like. And so they just released that last week. It was a fun podcast, and we thought that some of you might like to hear it as well. Uh, And so that's what you're going to hear. And so it's a slightly different format rather than me chatting with people. This is going to be Tech Freedom's uh, Evan Schwartztrauber interviewing me about uh, copyright notice and takedown policy. And uh, we hope that you'll like it. And uh, if you're listening to this for Tech Dirt podcast, uh, we'll be back next week with a regular one. And so make sure that you're subscribed uh, if you're not. And uh, if you are subscribed, please rate us, write a review, all sorts of good stuff like that. Anyways, on to today's slightly different podcast, which is the Tech Freedom podcast on Tech Dirt. Uh, We hope you enjoy it. Thanks. Welcome to the Tech Policy Podcast. I'm Evan Schwarztrauber. On today's show, our first episode about copyright. This is not an issue that Tech Freedom has engaged on, but it's an important one. And a lot of people in the tech policy world are talking about it all the time. So I'm excited to have someone on the show to talk about it. So uh, without further ado, my guest is Mike Masnick, founder and CEO of Floor64 and editor of the Tech Dirt blog. Mike, thanks for joining. Uh, Sure. Thanks for having me. Excited to be here and to bring copyright to your world. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. So, um, you know, w- one way of uh, getting listeners uh, into this is to talk about Taylor Swift and Katy Perry, because uh, those are two names <laughs> that people recognize. And uh, they might not agree on much outside of the policy world, but they do agree that our notice and takedown laws, they say they're outdated. What do I mean by notice and yeah. takedown? This is the mechanism by which a copyright holder can essentially ask an internet platform to remove content that infringes on those copyrights. And this comes from the 1998 DMCA, that's the Digital Millennium Copyright Act. And Section 512 of this act tried to strike a balance between copyright protection and protecting internet platforms from excessive liability. So just imagine, um, you know, you've gone on YouTube and you've seen clips of someone filming their television with an NFL game on it. I mean, just imagine if every time some idiot did that, uh, you could sue YouTube for mass sums. So that would obviously be presents a problem for internet platforms viability. So Congress has been trying for years to do something about copyright to update it. Um, And this issue raises really important questions about free expression, user privacy and balancing intellectual property with other rights. So uh, the Copyright Office is taking a look at three policy studies on this issue, and they're accepting public comment. And uh, Mike, I know that you and uh, your think tank, uh, I forget what it's called, uh, the think tank arm of your uh, website, but um, it, you submitted comments. So do you want to just yeah. kind of give a, a, a high level uh, summary of what you're arguing that the Copyright Office should do? Sure. And and uh, the 
think tank side of our business is called the Copia Institute. Ah, thank um, you. <laughs> uh, no problem. And um, yeah, so there are a lot of different issues at play with with notice and takedown and kind of how that handles intermediary liability within the copyright space. Um, And, you know, and so people, uh, you know, a a lot of people within the sort of traditional, uh, you know, music recording industry um, have been concerned that, you know, they feel that they have to chase stuff uh, to get it taken down and, and that it's, you know, there's an involved process um, to get infringing material taken offline. On the flip side, there's a, a concern that when you have a mechanism that allows someone to take content offline, that that mechanism can and often is abused. Um, and so our major concern was that you know, recognizing whatever, uh, um, you know, that there are issues, that there there is infringing content online that, that things need to be done about, um, we have to take into account what the impact is on, on speech when those systems can be abused to take down content. And the thing that we saw uh, quite frequently and lots of companies have, have shown is that the process itself is regularly abused. Um, you know, people sending... Uh, false takedown notices, made up takedown notices, um, targeting content they don't like, targeting competitive content, um, or just sort of you know, there's a there's a whole process of automated takedowns where you have systems that go around and send off takedown notices that often target things that are completely unrelated. So, for example, uh, Fox at one point sent takedown notices. Um, that they claim to be for the TV show Homeland, which is theirs, but it was actually targeting a book by Cory Doctorow, also entitled Homeland. <laughs> um, and that's a book that he willingly and, and by his own choice freely distributes online, and yet it was being targeted for takedown. Right. Um, so that's not the application of the law that Congress had in mind, of course. You know, as I said at the start, they were trying to balance two competing interests. But um, what do you think is the motivation? So so if the law is being used correctly, something yeah. that is infringing on a copyright is online, the copyright holder or a friend of theirs or whatever, their lawyer sees it, they send the notice and it goes down. That's an appropriate use. What is the motivation for abuse? Like, why are people trying to take down things that are not illegal? <laughs> well, I mean, there there are a variety of different motivations I think people have. I mean, there's lots of stuff that people see online that they just don't like, right? You know, uh, you know, we've seen the DMCA process, the 512 notice and takedown process abused to take down um, content about someone. So someone didn't like an article. There was, uh, as an example, there's this, this guy, uh, Craig Britton, uh, who ran a revenge porn site, uh, and got slapped down by the FTC, um, for a variety of different things that he was doing, many of which, you know, would be considered fairly sketchy. And that's what the FTC found. He sent a DMCA takedown notice, um, uh, demanding that the FTC's announcement about uh, its settlement with him get taken down, um, that a bunch of the articles, yes, um, that a bunch of the articles get taken down, and that's kind of an extreme case. I mean, that's that's one where it's sort of fairly obvious that this is someone who is clearly, you know, clearly has no copyright interest um, and is clearly abusing the system. The, the problem is that you know a lot of the attempts are are not quite so clear cut and and are a lot more subtle, and if you know, the way the notice and takedown process works is that if you're a platform 
that receives a, a five twelve takedown notice, you're not technically required to take down that content. All it's saying is um, you have safe harbors if you do take down that that content, and therefore that makes you sort of immune from 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 the lawsuit um, if you take down the content and follow certain rules. Um, and so some people will argue, well, you know, the platform has a choice, but you know, if you're a lawyer for any of these platforms, you're going to look at that and say, you know, if I don't take down that content, I'm putting tremendous liability on, you know, my company, my platform, whatever it might be. And therefore lots of companies, especially smaller companies that don't have sort of a big legal department to review every one of these takedowns will default to taking down that content, no matter how, you know, realistic or well-targeted the takedown notice might be. And therefore, it becomes this process where the threat of, of massive liability and of being tied up in a you know, big lawsuit for however long um, you know, convinces lots of platforms to take down content that might be perfectly legal. And that's where you, know, you get some serious sort of free speech concerns. Um, and that was, that was sort of the nature of the comment that we filed with the Copyright Office was that you have to take those concerns into account because you, you've you know, put together this process using the law and sort of the threats of, of liability in the courts um, to force companies to take content offline without any judicial review. And that's a big concern. Right. Yeah. So, so, so Section 512 safe harbor is different than the other safe harbor we often talk about with the Internet Section 230. So we've talked about that on the right. show before. That's the Communications Decency Act. And that's the kind of thing that gets uh, into short-term rental issues, right? So when a city council of a, uh, that wants to crack down on Airbnb, they'll say you can't advertise on the platform. And Airbnb could argue that it has Section 230 protection uh, because the website can't be held liable for the right. ads that someone puts. And of course, there are exceptions for things that are truly heinous, like child pornography and things like that. But how is the Section 512 safe harbor, which is often compared to the Section 230, how are they different? Right. Yeah, so they're different in, in some really important ways. And they're both attempts to sort of protect intermediary liability, but they take very different approaches. And And Section 230 is a broad immunity right? And it's basically, you know, what you describe, which is, and, and it makes sense just at a, a conceptual level, if you take a step back and you think about it and you say, you know, if somebody does something wrong on the internet, who, who is to blame for that? And the question is, is it the person who did the wrong thing or is it the tool or platform that they used? And I, you know, some people can make arguments going a different way. I don't find them that convincing. I think you should always put the the blame and any potential liability on the individual or company that does the bad thing rather than the tool or platform that they're using. I think that's sort of a, a fundamental um, fairness <laughs> concept that, that, that should make sense. And that's sort of what Section 230 of the CDA says, which is, you know, the platform should never be held legally responsible for the actions of the users. Um, and, it's, and it's a pretty complete ban. There are a few exceptions, and it does specifically carve out intellectual property. And that's where DMCA 512 steps in. Now, it's also trying to set up a regime that protects the intermediary from being blamed for the actions of the users, but rather than a broad immunity like Section 230 that says you are just not responsible, lawsuit over, you know, you can't sue over these things. The the, sec the uh, uh, Section 512 DMCA 
notice and takedown under copyright has specific rules where it says, you know, if you receive a notice and if that notice meets these, you know, criteria that are listed out within the law and you decide to take it down within a reasonable period of time, um, then you get those those liability protections. That's different. And under Section 230, you know, if somebody complains to, uh, uh, you know, a website or a platform and says, you know, there's this, uh, you know, comment on your blog that is defamatory under Section 230, the blog that has no responsibility to remove that. Under uh, DMCA 512, you know, if somebody sends a, a takedown notice and says this comment is infringing, then the site has, they, they risk liability uh, if they don't take that down. Whether or not, you know, that comment is truly infringing, you know, becomes a, a whole separate question. But because of the threat of liability, many sites will then just take that content down. So the sort of major difference is, is you know, 230, you have this broad immunity. Company can, you know, doesn't have to take responsibility for, directly for the actions of their users. Whereas under DMCA 512, um, you have to take content down if you don't want to, if you want to avoid uh, potential liability. So I think we can all agree, regardless of where you fall on this debate, that lawful content that is not infringing on copyright, if that gets taken down as collateral damage, that's bad, right? Because that creates right, a chilling right. effect on free speech. And the whole point of this law is to target the infringing material, which is not protected by the First Amendment. But let's get to the music industry's complaints, because they have just sure. like you, you have some beef with the current system. And they also have some beef with the current system. Yeah. They're saying, look, we've got whack-a-mole here, right? We've got yep. every every Joe Schmo with a cell phone can commit a copyright violation at any given time. And we've got to basically search you know, billions of internet users and try to find these people. And they might not have the money to make up for the damages caused by their copyright. It's really the platform that has that money. Now, sure. you know, what one guy, uh, T-Bone Burnett, I'm sure you're familiar with him. He has argued yep. that, look, these companies, Google, Facebook, um, other big companies with big data sets, they're able to micro-target you at such a granular level based on your preferences with advertising, and they have so much information. And he says they're basically playing dumb. They're saying, no, we cannot develop technology to prevent infringement automatically. So what do you think about this issue of should it be a human being that has to identify infringing content? Or what? Or what are the economic implications if we're talking about like an automated notice and takedown, like an algorithm? Sure. Yeah. So, so there are a few different things there, and and one to be clear is that you know whether or not you think you know like Google or or Facebook or whoever are playing dumb. The fact is they they actually do that already, right? I mean, you know, Google has this content ID system that prevents you from, you know, re-uploading certain songs or, you know, it, it, it does pattern matching, it blocks certain things. Um, you know, it offers the opportunity to, to monetize where the, the, uh, copyright holder can, can choose to do other things. Um, so, you know, they've built that kind of system, sort of an automated system, but, you know, Along with that, there have been problems and there are you know, numerous stories and we've covered a bunch of these, plenty of others have covered others of that system failing and that system being abused in the same way that I was described before, where, you know, content that is perfectly legal and perfectly legitimate gets taken down because the computer doesn't understand the context, doesn't understand what's going on. And that's, that's the thing that, that is, you know, 
I think sometimes difficult to comprehend, which is that, you know, copyright infringement is context specific, right? Some people assume that like, okay, if you see this content here, it's automatically infringing and everybody must know that, you know, and, and maybe there are some cases where that's true, but there's a lot of gray where you don't know, is something fair use? Is something parody? Is it, you know, protected under, uh, for other reasons, or maybe it's licensed. I mean, there are a number of stories of actual licensed content then being taken down by like Google's content ID because content ID has no way of recognizing whether or not that content is actually licensed or sort of the most famous of all, which is, you know, there was this big lawsuit for many, many years that, that really, you know, was litigating a lot of the, the boundaries of, of 512 notice and takedown involving, um, uh, Viacom suing YouTube over videos. And right before, right on the eve of the trial, uh, uh, Viacom had to pull out, I think it was about a hundred videos that they had listed as, as infringing that were subject to the lawsuit because they discovered that they had uploaded it themselves. <laughs> and you have this example of like, well, that's licensed use, right? I mean, that's Viacom employees putting the videos on YouTube for marketing purposes and then suing over it. And then, and that doesn't even touch on the the next factor, which is you know, the people who are complaining about, well, you know, Google and Facebook, they're big enough to do this. They don't then take into account what that means for everybody else, anybody else who wants to get into that market. I mean, I don't know how much Google spent on content ID, but I remember, I think I saw numbers that were like $60 million or something like that. You know, the next YouTube can't do that, right? Right. But if they're legally required to have that kind of system, then there is no next YouTube. Right, the people who are complaining about YouTube is you know, monopoly and so unfair, and yet then pushing for this kind of thing, this mandated you know notice and stay down or automated takedown system, don't recognize that what they're doing is locking in the thing that they claim is a monopoly by making it impossible for any other company to then come and do it because nobody else could afford it. Right. So I think you're and right so to be concerned about you know the smaller websites because that's often the effect of mandates is that the large guys can kind of comply, even if they hate it just as much as the little guy, but the little guy really can't comply. But on the flip right. side, you can make a similar argument about artists, right? So like people like Taylor Swift and Katy Perry, no one feels bad for them. I mean, they could sell sure. out a concert immediately. And in general, we've seen a shift in the music industry where, you know, 20 years ago, you had to buy a $20 CD to get 10 songs and no one really liked that. Uh, that wasn't the best. Uh, but now you're seeing no one's albums so, are going some of the pla- platinum anymore. <laughs> Well, maybe, yeah, they, they would like that. So yes, RIAA definitely would maybe would probably prefer returning to that system of the, the heyday sure. of the 90s. But, uh, you know, now we have a different system. People are streaming, yeah. et cetera. But, you know, you could argue that while this seems like a debate between large companies, large artists, large trade associations, what's who's doing anything to help the small artists, the struggling indie musician? Sure. I mean, what, what could get, they get out of the debate? I mean, yes, it might not be technically feasible, uh, for the companies to do it. And there's problems with the current system. But I mean, who's looking out for them? Yeah. And, and I, there's a legitimate concern there. And I think the problem is when you look at um, copyright law or, or DMCA and notice and takedown in particular as sort of like the be all end all solution to all of this, right? There are all sorts of problems facing smaller, less well-known 
artists. And and that's been true forever. This is not a new thing, right? I mean, the the trope of the starving artist or the starving musician is not, you know, a brand new concept that, that <laughs> right. existed, you know, many, many years ago, right? So sort of the first 10 years of the, uh, you know, of the millennium, uh, more music had been created and released, uh, recorded and then released than ever before in history combined. You know, you, <laughs> because you had tools that made it easier to create. You had tools that made it easier to uh, build a fan base, to build up support, to distribute your music, to promote your music, uh, and to make money off of your music. So all of the things that, you know, artists in the past would have had to have found like a record label to take on all of these difficult jobs, promoting, distributing, um, you know, paying for recording, all of those things have become much, much easier because of the internet. And so, you know, these tools on the internet have solved many of these problems. And you have, you know, platforms like Kickstarter and Patreon um, that are stepping up and creating all sorts of really interesting solutions. I mean, Patreon, to me, is one of the most interesting companies out there. Uh, in that, you know, it allows artists to get ongoing support. So for a musician, you know, one of the popular uses of it, it can be used in all different ways, but one of the sort of original, and it was created by musicians. Um, you know, one of the, the sort of quintessential ways it's used is that every time a musician releases a song, um, all of that musician's fans basically agree to pay a certain amount. So, and, and, you know, there are different tiers. So, you know, if there's a musician I like, I can say I'll pay a dollar every time they release a new song or $5 or 10, you know, and, and I might get more, you know, different things if I, if I support at a higher level. And then the artist knows every time I release a new song, um, you know, I get X amount you know, whatever the total is, I push a button, I release the song, the song goes out to all my fans. And I automatically get, you know, however many, uh, however much dollars are, are set up by my fans. And there are artists like Amanda Palmer is sort of the famous one. I think like every time she releases a song on Patreon, she gets something like 40 or $45,000 just by releasing that song. And so she's in a position where she doesn't then care whether or not somebody has taken that song and, you know, put it on somewhere else, you know, YouTube or, or a file sharing or, or a locker for free because she knows that, you know, if anything, that's just going to hopefully get her more fans. More fans will lead to more people agreeing to pay for Patreon. And therefore, she has a business model that's sustainable. That doesn't necessarily work for everyone. No one's saying that there's a, a silver bullet that works for everyone. But the more and more you look around, you see all of these sort of interesting and innovative platforms that seem to be solving all of these problems in a way that the the issue and concern around piracy and the fact that music is being put in certain places without direct payment becomes less and less of a concern. Well, then we have a choice to make, I guess. And it looks like, you know, despite the current problems with this, the current system, some people might prefer to see this system than to see what would come out of a legislative process. But we know that Congress is interested in this issue. And I mentioned that the Copyright Office has been looking at a couple of things. So to the extent that there is going to be movement on legislation and you've got competing interests, you've got the problems you've articulated with notice and takedown currently that maybe you'd like to see solved through legislation. But then, you know, the music industry might want to see some technical standards, uh, you know, a basic set of standards to prevent infringement or technology to facilitate, uh, 
you know, getting rid of infringing content or permanent bans on people who repeat offend, you know, like if you keep going on YouTube and you keep posting uh, infringing content that you just get bumped. Um, So you've got these competing interests, you've got Congress looking at it. What do you think about the legislative process? I mean, what would you like to see out of legislation or is it too risky and we should just preserve the current system? Because that's that's been a criticism of the copy left. Some have said, look, you know, people like Mike Masnick and Electronic Frontier Foundation and Public Knowledge, they complain about the current system, yet they're too afraid to engage in legislation because they think the final product will be worse than the current product. What do you think about all that? Um, yeah, I mean, I think that that is perhaps a fair statement that, that you know, there is concern of what happens when you open up that that black box. And and so, you know, we had this this thing where when the DMCA passed in 1998, you know, those same people, the the EFFs and and Mike Masnick and, and public knowledges of the world, um, you know, were unhappy about about the the structure of the DMCA at the time and and we still have, you know, plenty of concerns about it. The thing that's changed in the, you know, 19 years since that happened is that you know, there's been a lot of litigation, so there's a fair amount of case law that the boundaries of of what is really covered is known, and so and and the the sort of larger concern is at least when you're looking at the history of the way that copyright law is made and sort of you know how the sausage is made. Historically, it has been driven very much by the sort of legacy interests of the recording and and. Uh, film studio uh, interests prior to the whole SOPA fight. And I'm sorry, like, I know nobody's ever supposed to mention SOPA again, but like (laughs) prior to the SOPA fight, um, you know, you had in the course of the previous 30 years, there were 15 expansions of copyright law and all in one direction. And, you know, all pushed for by the same players. Well, nobody and, knew copyright could be so complicated. I mean, just <laughs> nobody. <laughs> oh, gosh. Uh, <laughs> not going to comment on that. So um, <laughs> it's it it just becomes the, you know, so I, the fact is, in all of the debates on this, unfortunately, you have the same people, and I'll include myself in this, you know, the same people making the same arguments. And there's there you know nobody's nobody's budging nobody's moving on those things um and to me that's that's part of the problem you know and and as i said earlier in the podcast you 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 see you know to me many of the solutions to these problems and the wonderful things that we're seeing are all coming from these innovative platforms that are doing wonderful things and yet this is structured as if it's you know like Hollywood versus Silicon Valley or, you know, however you want to put it, entertainment industry versus the internet or whatever. And that's ridiculous. I mean, because you look at, you know, every one of these sort of moral panics around piracy from new technologies and every one of them was overblown and in fact overblown the 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 wrong way. And and I've given this example a bunch of times, but I think it's worth mentioning just to sort of illustrate the point, but it applies to lots of things. You know, Jack Valenti, who was head of the MPAA for decades, you know, uh, and and fought very hard against the VCR from existing, gave this very famous testimony uh, to Congress in 1984, and in it he said, you know, the the VCR um, would be to the to the movie industry what the Boston Strangler was to a woman at home. You know, basically oh saying yes. So if the VCR is allowed to exist, it will literally murder the the industry, um, Hollywood, the movie industry. It was four years later, literally four years after he he gave that testimony, that 
the home video revenue surpassed box office revenue. Okay. Home video did not kill Hollywood. Home video saved Hollywood. Home video, you know, massively grew Hollywood. And yes, you know, now the home video market has changed and there are challenges there and there are different things there. But the point is, every time these new technologies have come along and the legacy industries that had a business model based on a, you know, a different way of doing things have freaked out about it and said, piracy is going to kill us. Piracy is a problem. And every single time is actually expanded and opened up new opportunities for those markets. And, you know, and we're seeing that again with the internet today. And so, you know, in an ideal world, if I could, you know, restructure everything in my vision, you know, what I would love to see is, you know, Everyone take a step back and look at what's happening and look at how all these innovative services are creating all these new opportunities, how they're decreasing the cost of everything, you know, the cost of making content, the cost of distributing, the cost of promoting, the ability to monetize that content, the ability to build up fan bases, the ability to do all of these wonderful things has gone down. It's become much easier and it's opened up all sorts of opportunities for so many different artists and and creators who never had any opportunity before. And that's a great thing. And if we focus on that kind of innovation and encouraging that and enabling that and allowing that to flourish rather than freaking out about, you know, piracy, then, you know, the world changes very, very quickly. And piracy actually becomes less and less of a problem. And, you know, just by itself, it sort of goes away by itself without, you know, having to have a a regulatory change in terms of how like notice and takedown works. And this is something, you know, we did this study that we released a a couple of years ago that found this that like, everywhere we looked, we, we went through like a whole bunch of different countries that had, um, uh, you know, changes in, in enforcement for, for piracy and also, um, uh, had, you know, if there were differences in sort of, uh, uh levels of innovation. So number of licensed services, what we found is when you had an introduction of a licensed service over and over again, you saw piracy drop. So when you have, when you allow innovation, the piracy rate drops naturally. When you increase enforcement with the idea that that's going to decrease piracy, it doesn't work. It may work in the short term. There are lots of studies that show like, you know, right after uh, a law that ratchets, ratchets up the, the penalties for infringement goes into effect, that piracy rates will drop. But it's, it's a short term effect. You see within about six months that the rate of, of piracy sort of goes back to what it was before. People sort of figure out ways around it. They forget, they don't care, whatever. But what makes piracy drop is when you have, you know, good, convenient, well-priced, legitimate services, you know. And so, like, the, the most obvious example of this, and again, this is an extreme one, but it's a good illustrative example, is Sweden, right? So Sweden was home to the Pirate Bay, right? The Pirate Bay started there. The amount of piracy that, that happened in Sweden was tremendous. Everyone used the Pirate Bay. Then Spotify came along, also based in Sweden, and you look, and when Spotify came along, the rate of music piracy in Sweden dropped off a cliff. It just like went away. Everyone signed up for Spotify. Yeah, the basic idea is that you know if you're if you can get the same content at like a reasonable flat rate per month streaming, yeah. uh, you're much less likely, as an adult at least, sure, to engage in that sort of thing. Piracy might just you know we might 
be looking at a future where piracy is like a youthful indiscretion. And then once you actually make a paycheck and you're an adult, you kind of get past that. But uh, you've given us a lot to talk, uh, think about. <laughs> and uh, this has been a super interesting discussion. And I know that I'm sure some of our listeners have a different view. So uh, the podcast is for everyone. So feel free to reach out to me and uh, and to rebut some of the, the stuff we talked about today. But I want to thank my guest, uh, Mike Masnick, founder and CEO of Floor 64 and editor of the Tech Dirt blog. Mike, thanks so much. Yeah, thanks for having me. This was fun. So follow us on Twitter and Facebook at Tech Freedom. Let us know what you think of the show. Send us an email at media at techfreedom.org. Feel free to pitch yourself as a guest. Find this podcast on the iTunes store. Please leave us a review because it will help others find the show. Thanks for listening. The Tech Policy Podcast is produced and distributed by Tech Freedom, a nonpartisan nonprofit think tank in Washington, D.C. To learn more about our work, make a tax-deductible donation, or find other episodes, find us online at techfreedom.org.